I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. And I'm Elizabeth Denevi, and this is Teaching While White, where whiteness intersects with anti-racist teaching and learning. I will never forget a Black woman educator saying to me, I'm in a car and it's on fire, and white people are asking me if I can turn on the air conditioning. That has always stayed with me. Yeah, that's some powerful irony. In the wake of the summer uprisings in support of Black Lives Matter, we heard from so many white teachers wanting to do more and do better for their students and colleagues of color. And it's a good instinct, but we as white teachers have to recognize that we need way more than air conditioning and to stop asking people of color to be the ones to make it cooler. We can't opt out, and we have to follow the leadership of people of color to be working in solidarity to put out the fire. Yeah, it's a predictable pattern. Racism happens, some white folks are outraged, they join a book club to study race, and then go back to business as usual. Rinse and repeat. While book clubs are important because they can help educate us to things we may not know, they're just a first step. The goal is to change our behavior so we stop participating in the cycle. We wanted to hear from some educators of color who are working directly to make schools better and safer for students and teachers of color. Their work can also help white students and faculty develop their anti-racist skills to move beyond the book club and take bigger steps towards dismantling racism. So what does true anti-racism look, sound, and feel like from their white colleagues? Jose Wilson identifies as Afro-Latino and is the author of This Is Not a Test, a new narrative on race, class, and education. He's a national board certified teacher and a Math for America master teacher. Jose is also the founder of EduColor, an organization dedicated to race and social justice issues in education, which he said was created in response to teachers wanting to do diversity, yet needing to move educators towards anti-racism instead. I started by asking him how he would advise white teachers who are fearful of wading into conversations about race and racism. As a math person or as a math teacher, I like to ask people to approach building a framework that would necessarily make themselves uncomfortable in the ways that we ask students to be uncomfortable all the time. Um, And so for me, I feel like if there is something that someone doesn't know, then they could either act with a sense of defensiveness or they could act with a sense of inquisitiveness and curiosity. We constantly laud curiosity among students, but uh, we as adults are often expected to have all the answers when we actually don't. And then when we don't have the answers, we as adults do this thing where we pretend like we know just so we could actually fit in instead of asking better questions and just sitting in that moment. Right. Right. Um, And so I, a part of me feels like we already have a framework that would allow teachers to get better acclimated to this conversation around race. If you're somebody who's already passed the one Oh one. So like you've read the books, you, you know, you've, follow Educolor on Twitter or whatever have you, or you have any number of friends or critical friends and people who you speak to about these sorts of racial issues, then obviously you should feel comfortable with doing the next step, which is acting upon it. But if you have no idea where you're going, then step number one has to be the listening and it has to be active listening. So when I tell people that they're like, well, you know, what does that mean? It's like, there's, so it's like when you walk up to somebody and like, you try to tell something, and then when you ask them to repeat it back to you, they're like, oh, I heard you, and then they just walk away instead of trying to repeat back to you what you said and trying to like internalize what you were trying to mean, even if you disagree with it. Um, so the listening part is really important for all this. So that's step number one, and the, listening actively. Second is then to do the reading and the research, because there's any number of critical race scholars who've done this work for decades on end, right? And so if they've already put in that work, then why not help them uh, help them help you? I mean, that's kind of the way that goes, right? Uh, obviously, I like to start people off with uh, Beverly Daniel Tatum's work, uh, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting in the Cafeteria, right? But it's, yeah. you know, there's more than that at this point. And you can feel free to pick up any number of books like that and you'd still be in good standing. And then the third part has to be the acting part. But then when you're in the classroom, you you could do a thing where you actually 
just go through it via questions. Like mm-hmm. it's a constructivist sort of way, right? Because in math, for example, in my own classroom, I really try my best not to give all the answers. If anything, I just like to ask the questions. And then when I hear the answers from the children, I then say, all right, well, thank you. And then I walk away. Like I don't give them a sense that I've given them the right answer, whatever have you, right? So yeah. similarly, when it comes to this race conversation, it would be like, oh, well, um, I don't really know this much. Can you tell me more about what you felt there or uh, what do you notice or what do you see? And then build the conversation from there. I mean, a lot of this does take being nimble, but you still got to do it. What do you think the harm is for not bringing it up? I think there's a lot of folks who talk a lot about trying to make things better for the world and yet don't do anything in their own lives to make that happen. I think that's the danger is like, you can't keep talking about the values that you espouse, and yet you don't use the positions of privilege that you do have to make sure that world gets better. And you have to be able to act in the ways that you possibly have. I think, secondly, um, so many of our children who are underserved, who are marginalized, who are vulnerable in our institutions uh, often feel like the person in front of them uh, espouses the same values that the system does. So even me as a black teacher who came from a very similar background to them, they're, they're quick to like my students should be very suspicious of me if I'm a teacher, because I have the power in the classroom. Right. And I am paid to abide by whatever has been given. Unless of course I explicitly tell students that I am trying to do things differently. I, and I show it in the ways that I talk, in the ways that I teach, in the ways that I act when I hear things. And so, um, and obviously I'm not perfect in any of this work. I mean, I think none of us are. At the same time, it's um, it's something where we, like the danger would necessarily be that we continue with the status quo and the status quo continues to push out kids um, and especially our most marginalized kids um, away from getting a good education. And the flip side of that is the number of white kids, the next generation of white kids who are afraid to talk about race because they don't have white adults talking about race. And so if we have the next generation of white kids who are still not talking about race, we can't make any changes. Right. I mean, there's the fear, but then there's also the part too, where they continue to espouse it as well. So, you know, you get those, so you get those implicit and explicit signals that you shouldn't hang out with certain kids. Like this anti-racism life is really a way of life. It is not like a few statements. It is not like a, a set of banners. It is a way of life. It's a way of approaching this work. Yeah. It's not a checklist <laughs> at all. I love that you, uh, I'd love to talk about math because the number of teachers that I meet, um, white teachers, obviously I'm, I'm speaking specifically about white teachers, uh, who teach math and science who say, I'm just a math teacher. This has nothing to do with me. That's, that's the humanities department issue. We don't, we don't talk about social justice in math or science. What, what do you have to say about that? I think that, social justice and race show up in ways that you couldn't even possibly imagine. I mean, for every time that you think kids aren't learning, they're still getting an education. It depends on what they're getting an education about. So if you have a teacher in front who explicitly says, well, I don't have to talk about this thing because um, it's not really about me. You tell kids, especially those of us, the, the kids who are you know, most vulnerable, most marginalized, most black, you tell them that their lives don't matter to you. So um, to that end, it's almost incumbent upon those of us who are in the STEM type topics, the technical topics to familiarize ourselves with racial and social justice issues and make them core to the work that we need to do. So, for example, as a math teacher, people like to talk about how we never teach kids how to do taxes. But I feel like my whole like I feel like a whole third of my seventh grade unit is about how to play with percentages. And if you don't explicitly say, hey, like I'm trying to teach you how to do simple, you know, taxes and you um, just bypass the whole curriculum without having uh, told kids explicitly, you're getting some financial uh, understandings here. Then you're leaving a lot of kids behind who can't connect the material that you're trying to teach to the world that's outside of them. Even when you think about things like graphs and how so many people right now are playing around with, they're frankly lying 
when it comes to some of the things that are happening with COVID or with unemployment rates. Are they using all these like graphs in really uh, awful ways? If you can't interpret that, then you are going to be left out of the conversation. You are going to be uh, bamboozled, as it were. And a lot of that has to do with whoever taught them how to interpret graphs. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the struggle for me is like, you're not necessarily going to explicitly talk about racial and social justice issues, but the ways that you teach in the pedagogy and the curriculum, because I could be super duper radical in the classroom too. I could totally do that. But if I approach radicalism with uh, militaristic uh, pedagogies and the, you know, a lack of student agency, or at least a lack of student voice and input, then I, we, you missed the whole lesson. So uh, the pedagogy and the curriculum and the ability for students to feel like they're human beings inside your classroom is really critical to this anti-racism in education conversation. So in the classroom, when a, when a white teacher is trying to have these discussions about real world, incorporating racial justice and racial uh, literacy in their pedagogy and in their, maybe even in their curriculum. How, how do we have that discussion? I think a lot of white teachers struggle with, I want to have discussions with, about race, about racial justice, and I don't want to center my white experience and whiteness. Got it. I would say that, you know, when you have charts on your uh, in, in your room that suggests how students should talk, i.e. accountable talk, um, you often center whiteness in that way, right? Our kids don't naturally speak. Our kids can speak however they wish, but the minute that you create a template by which they should have the conversation, then that's already going to be centering whiteness because it necessarily centers what we consider uh, the normative way of approaching robust discussion, right? Um, and it's not to say that our kids like need to curse or not. Sometimes it's going to come out. Sometimes the fury is going to be really uh, relevant to what the conversation is. And so being able to curse may be a thing for so many of our, especially if you're teaching middle school or high school, right? Yep. Um, that's, a, that's necessarily going to be part of it. At the same time, um, I think sometimes the way that people interpret rage is often um, a marker for racism and centering whiteness, right? Um, People keep emphasizing things like peaceful protests um, while folks are dying. So, um, you know, when you when you have kids who are utterly frustrated with and out and righteously outraged at the idea that they could die disproportionately from police brutality, for example, um, if the teacher just says, well, you know, just make sure you're peacefully protesting and change will come. Um, I I don't know how, you know, that's going to be a bomb to kids who uh, actually need that sort of healing, right? Um, Versus letting them feel the rage, feel the outrage, flow through it. And, you know, being that teacher who says, I'm here to listen and, I can try to help process your feelings in the best ways possible. I mean, that would be a way to decenter whiteness. I think another way, perhaps, would just be to straight up say, like, okay, yes, I you know, I know I'm white <laughs> and yeah. I don't necessarily get it. And I'm not gonna center my feelings when you feel the way that you feel right now. But I'm just going to sit back. And then I'm going to try to process what you're saying so we can construct something that's a little bit better. Too many people uh, still see white as normal. And so that whiteness as normal necessarily means that everybody else is abnormal versus trying to create something where even in your classrooms, everybody's experiences are different. And you try to level that, that field to make sure that everybody feels at least some sort of flatness. It's not going to be all the way through, right? Because teacher's still a teacher. Teacher's still got to do what they need to do and they get paid to do so. Um, But that flattening is so critical to assuring that students feel safe sharing their experiences. I think those are good, a good two elements to walk away with, because obviously if we could solve racism in this podcast, we totally would have, but 
we, we're still working on it, aren't we? There's a lot of language out there that people really want white folks to get acclimated to, which I respect 100%. You know, things like anti-racism and, you know, um, heteronormivity and all these other, like, different types of languages. And I get that we kind of need those languages in order for people to understand what's happening from an intellectual standpoint. But we need to go... like a little, a few steps back from intellectualizing it and actually trying to figure out how we make this into a lifestyle so that it becomes cultural. So you can, for example, read all the Ta-Nehisi quotes you want, bell hooks, whatever, Audrey Lord, you could do all that. But then if you're still sending your child to a private school because it's the most comfortable option for you, then maybe that's something you need to think about. Or mm. if all your friends are white, even though you have access to, uh, to black people or uh, Latinx people, and you only have one black friend, but that black friend doesn't feel the same way about you, then maybe that's a conversation. Um, if yeah. you go, like if the only folks you really know who are of color are your local grocer or the custodian in your school, then how is that? A, how is that a lifestyle change? So, um, we can keep it 100% woke and all that when we're on social media, when we're... Um, and by the way, like you shouldn't only be talking about racism when you're in the midst of Black people or people of color, right? You should be talking about like racism wherever you go. You should feel free to make Thanksgiving as uncomfortable as possible when you know grandma, grandpa, whoever it is, makes it super racist, right? And it has to be a thing where you are making conscious decisions about how you approach different people. I just need you to be like, you know what? Like, I messed up and I'm going to do better. How can I remedy this so we can actually do better for each other? Like, keep it that simple. That's kind of what I want to think about. And then when it comes to our kids especially, it's okay to apologize to kids too. Like, it's okay to treat them as full human beings that... You can have a conversation with my fact that respect you even more for the fact that like you actually stepped in and said, you know what? I messed up here. Um, but you're not going to constantly be in that, you know, that zone of, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being white. No, no, you don't have to be sorry for being white. You just have to, you just have to do the work. Like it's okay. And then, you know, everything will flow through as a result. So that's kind of where I stand on too many of these things right now. That was Jose Vilson, author, teacher, and founder of EduColor. Jenna also had a conversation with Kelly Wickham Hurst, award-winning author for her blog, Mocha Mama, and founder and executive director of Being Black at School, a nonprofit that focuses on addressing the complexities of being a black student in the American education system. Kelly identifies as a black woman. I started by asking Kelly what educators need to do to ensure that black students are safe at school. The school systems are, as they, in their current iteration, have never been set up for anybody but white children. And I try to explain that through some historical lenses of thinking about um, actually not just Brown versus Board of Education, but going further back than that and thinking about Mendez versus Westminster. Um, And if I'm dropping some names of some court cases that people don't know, this would be a, that's a great, like, (laughs) let's just search that one. Um, But I think that when we think about the ways in which the schools in the United States were set up, they were set up by and for white children. And that is not to say that there were not also black schools or Chinese schools or Mexican schools, because we had all of those things. Um, we, we had so many different types of schools that when you think about the, the ones that shut down, it's, it's quite breathtaking. And really what happened, um, especially in terms of my own family experience in terms of Brown versus board is that my father didn't graduate high school because of it. Um, because my grandmother knew that they were going to close his black school and she was right. Um, 
as wise old black women often are, as I have learned. And that she understood that when we talked about Mexican schools or black schools or Chinese schools, that those all had the hyphen and that what, what really, I guess what we didn't really consider was that the, the regular schools or the normal schools were actually white schools, but we just refused to name them that. Right. We still refuse to name, we, we refuse to name all of our systems as white institutions and they're all white institutions. If there were ever any institutions, a grocery store, a bank, a school, um, anything that was providing a service to people that white people didn't want other people using, then we came up with our own stuff. And then inevitably white people ruined that by either burning it down or creating all kinds of laws or things that, I mean, some things are codified into law and some are codified into convenience. I kind of think that we, we can't really understand what's happening right now today. If we don't understand how it gets set up. Yeah. And if you don't understand why people are furious today, then you don't understand how, how long we've been so furious when you think about the anger and, and fury and absolute frustration at insisting to people in this country and in our communities that we are actual human beings with the same exact needs and wants and desires and rights, like we have spent a long, long time trying to prove that. And, and, and people are sick of it. They're sick of defending their humanity in this horrifically dehumanizing way that racism just separates us. So schools were set up for white children and ultimately white teachers eventually. Um, So what are you seeing in schools? How are you seeing black students being impacted by trying to survive in these white institutions? Well, I'm seeing that nothing has changed from the in-person to the digital. Hmm. Uh, I'm seeing that all of the all of the data and all of the research that we get that tells us that black students are punished far more than their white peers are. And that um, black students are not in as many gifted and talented classes as their peers are, especially not when you're looking at percentages. Um, Like we have enough data. Like I'm, I'm actually sick of data. Yeah. And, and for people who are like, well, how do we know that black children are suspended? I'm like, oh my gosh, the, all you, like you have Google yeah. now. There's no reason you can't know this at this point. But as educators, for us to know that information and refuse to change means something else is at play. And what, they, what we don't want to name that is at play is white supremacy. And the reason we don't want to name that is because people immediately think you're calling me a white supremacist um, or that you're putting me in the same category as the Klan. And I think, you know, white supremacy has been really polite too. Like white supremacy is not just violent fringe people who are going off and trying, <laughs> literally trying to kill us. The, like white supremacy is the woven fabric of the undercurrent of this country. That's what it got built on. So why are we... Why are we in 2020 scratching our heads as to why we're still struggling with this? Because we can't even name the thing that's wrong. I love that you talk about taking action. And so many schools that I interact with talk about, let's do a climate assessment survey. And Uh like you said, one more study. And, you know, we just need to get buy-in from the community. And it's like- that's such BS. Can I just call BS on that? Yes, go ahead, please. There is no such thing as buy-in from the community. There never has been. That's a farce. That is people in positions of power making decisions. And then if they don't want to do something- they blame it on not having buy-in from the community. That's that's ridiculous, you know? Or I tell you what, I've worked in schools and um, I've been a part of some things and had to enforce policy and they did not get my buy-in, but they didn't right. ask me. Right. And this whole idea, I mean, like you said, there are hundreds of years of testimony of storytelling, description, you know, literature, art, describing experiences of people of color. And yet we're all, I see again and again, white folks wanting to have another panel discussion, oh, another, oh. ask students what their experience is, or, as if and, that and, will then change their understanding, right? Right, right. And I, I'm, I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings, Jenna, so I'm just going to prep it, okay? 
Okay. And it's also not just starting a book club and reading White Fragility. Like if that's all you've done, which is what I'm hearing from way too many people, I like, I'm sorry, but I, I can't, I can't waste any time on you. Yeah. Like, like I can't even, I don't know how else to bring you along. If, if you are just, if your reaction to murder is to get into a book club, I mean, just imagine, like, let's think about an issue that is really important to the white community. Um, and I'm thinking like really large socially. Mm-hmm. <sighs> like if, if some little white girl gets kidnapped and we follow her story for years and years and years and years, and we're obsessed and it's on the news constantly. And our response is, huh, I think I'm going to read a book and start a book club about that. Right. That's a slap in the face. I took your course and, and you talk about um, not having people come to the table who aren't ready to be at the table. Right. 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 So my question is, this is something I struggle with. Should there be mandatory racial literacy professional development in schools or are we waiting for folks to get there to be able to receive that kind of training? What can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, I think there there could be some multiple layers to this. So I think that long term systemic change is not mandated change. Um, and yet I I also think that what we do in our school systems is we actually mandate things and then we ask we put the burden on the people of color to provide it. Right. Um, either those people who are in the institution or people of color outside the institution. And when we do that, absent any kind of value shift, it's just, it's just putting lipstick on a pig, right? It's just, you just dressed this up and you put a bow on it. And um, so I think that when we, when, when I work with schools and, and uh, sometimes schools will, offer that, you know, I'm really struggling. There's like a lot of people that don't want to do this. I'm like, well, you realize that that is your hiring problem, right? Right. Like that is not the problem of the rest of the people in this building, but who made the choice to bring those people in, in the first place? And, and, and we can't usually answer that question, right? So then we, we have to sort of pull the lens back further. Then how do these people get in these positions? How do they maintain these positions? Okay, so what has been at play all along here that has allowed that thing to happen? And that's white supremacy culture. So unless we're going to like actually name that and talk about that, then you doing diversity stuff or mandating, you know, I had someone reach out to me recently and say, I, I'm really looking to see if I can hire you to do some racial sensitivity training. And I said, no, I don't do that. (laughs) I can't teach you how to be sensitive. You have bigger problems if what you're asking in 2020 is racial sensitivity training. Um, Like you aren't even, you're not even using all the, like the updated, which are now old buzzwords, which are diversity and equity and inclusion. Like you're not even there. And which means you're not even ready to talk about how diversity movements got started in the United States. And why we have them in so many places and who they actually protect. Like you're not even ready for ideology. I can't, there, there's no way. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a bit of, I think what that this means for white people is that their work is multi-layered and you have multiple tiers of work you need to do with people. Some of that is your new personal interpersonal relationships with people and then being like you uh let let me just get you on board right let me get you right in line here you like and i can talk to you like this and other times like a tear could be you have heard horrific things come out of other white people's mouths and you have not ever ever challenged it like maybe that's your starting work maybe that's what you need to practice um and maybe you're maybe you're ready to talk about like deep cultural shifts in this country and you are ready to do that kind of work. Um, I think that, that this is, I was just recently listening to, um, because it's always good 
uh, advice to listen to Toni Morrison. And one of the things that she is talking about, and she's talking to Charlie Rose, who's asking her a question, uh, and she really turns it around and says, you know, it is really you. It is really you white people that have the misshaping. There's something wrong with you to have allowed this to go on as long as it has, to continue to benefit from your own ancestors and your own family members, to to be caught up in a system where your ancestors actually set it up so that you wouldn't even recognize it when it came right to your face, that you couldn't even see all of the privileges and the ways that they set you up. They wanted that to be hidden from you. And now this entire way of being, this entire language is hidden from you and you can't even speak it. You should be doing the work. We should be your allies. Right. Right. Like right. white people say, I'm your ally. I'm like, oh, hell no. I can't tear down the system. I didn't build it. Yeah. You you did. Your people did. You, you are in the system as a beneficiary of that. How are you going to tear it down? Because I can't do it. But here, hey, I'm here to help you. I will be your ally. Well, so part of me wants to say that the initial, you know, the diversity work that is happening in schools without the expectation, without the accountability, it's just wishful thinking, right? That we don't have that. And so I am caught between saying, just as though you were a teacher today and said, no, sorry, I don't do computers, that would not be permitted, right? Mm. And that without a basic level of racial literacy in this era and time in particular, it's a form of literacy. It's not about what's in your heart and mind. It's ability to understand that race has an impact on teaching and learning at the very least, right? Right. And we will support you. We will give you training, but without, but eventually you're going to be held accountable to some basic level of awareness and literacy. Right. Right. Doesn't that make, I, so, but I also know that when there are mandated trainings, often it makes things worse for folks of color in the building. So I just, something I struggle with deciding between. Which stories. is why I lean so heavily on like our organizing skills. We have them. Like we know how to organize yeah. So we do not necessarily have to get the that, you know, 100% buy-in. Like we need to create systems, schools, institutions. We need to create places where the people who are trying to uphold white supremacy are so uncomfortable that yeah. they are so they they feel like they are so much in the minority and they can't speak up and so then they have to leave or change. That's, that's the culture we need to get to. Absolutely. So you talked about white people doing this work, what the role of white folks in this work is, and when is it important to step up and when is it important to step back? And I know there are a huge variety of responses to that, but I wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those things where, because race is so it's not just nefarious and it's not just sneaky. It's not just, it's not trying to be sly and slick in ways. Sometimes like things are kind of ambiguous and we're not sure about it. Um, and sometimes we can have a do over. And so one of the things I think that's important to note in like where white people's work is, is your work is where it is actually going to be accountable to people of color. So if your work is on um, listening to the, the the people of color, people, families in your school district who are loud right now about the injustices that they're experiencing at the hands of schools um, in terms of, of all of the rules or all the policies or the ridiculous ways that, you know, black and Latino mothers are being um, accused of neglect and reported to state agencies if their children are not online. Meanwhile, lots of middle-class white families can just like opt the hell out and don't have to show up. Um, if, if it's okay, I think what we need to do is really ask the people of color, how can I be of service to you? Yeah. How can, how can I actually do And Because here's the thing we've never really asked that question. We've just been asked to be sensitive or we've just been asked to check our privilege or we've just yeah. been asked to, um, you know, we've, we've been asked to do this. Like it's like a checklist of things. And I think that what white people want more than anything is a checklist. 
Absolutely. Please tell me all the steps and all the things to do. And the 10 step plan. Yeah. Yeah. There is no 10 step program. Yeah. Like when you start showing up and you start like really asking yourself and digging down, like, okay, how was I showing up just now? Was this like real, like, have I always talked like this or thought like this about people? You know, I think white people's accountability to us has really never been in question. It's, it's really been like, all right, tell me the right thing to do. So do I speak up now? Do I not speak up? Do I pass the mic or do I use my privilege? Which one am I supposed to do? And, and what that is usually devoid of is someone's relationship to their own community. Yeah. Like if you don't know what to do in your community, that says something about you. And that says something about, and, and I don't say that as a way to shame you. I say that as a way to say, wow, you have been misled for such a long time. You have been so disconnected mm-hmm. from your humanity and from yourself. You have been so wrapped up in trying to access whiteness because you do understand how it works. You understand how it operates. You just have not wanted to admit it to yourself because it's going to be painful to really look at that and say, oh God, what, what have I done? Have I just really walked through life never ever considering how it all got set up for me? Yeah. And I think that that's like, that's the, that's a pain point, Jenna. And I like, it's okay for me to name that. It's okay. I heard you take a deep breath there. Like yeah. it's, it's okay for us to actually name how we have all been harmed yeah. in the system. I feel like until white people understand what it has cost us, then we show up with this sort of white savior mentality that, you know, we're here to help people of color, that this isn't about us somehow, that we're outside of this dilemma and that, um, a dilemma, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I would just love to talk about white saviorism a little bit because I read your piece, A Certain Looking White Woman, which I highly recommend for white women to read. Um, and one thing you talked about are people who call the cops or interfere as um, that they believe that they're trying to help or rescue somehow. And that had never really dawned on me that that's, that's part of what's going on in that equation. And so I think white savior, I, we both know, we all know, white saviorism is a big issue. And when white folks first come to this work and they think they're the first people to discover it, they want to go rush in and fix things, right? Right. Um, and help. And especially with white teachers, right? Um most white teachers say, I love all my students equally. And once you start to say, actually, that's not true, um, then there's this white savior wanting to compensate um, and help all the black and brown children of the world. I don't know. You get caught up in all kinds of other mess with that. Right. I think most white women think it's someone else, right? Um, And I think we're all guilty of doing it. So how, how do you identify that certain looking, what you said you were able to spot those women across the room? Uh, How do you, how do you pick up on that intention or that white savior or that, that type of white woman? Good question. Well, first of all, I want to just first illustrate one story that I've heard from a a dear friend and colleague and trainer, co-trainer with me, um, who's a white woman. And she was, she was like, I was a classroom teacher before we went into the work of anti-racism and, and doing the work that we, we both do. And, she said, um, well, I knew I wanted to be a teacher because I had seen all the teacher movies. I had gotten all the messages. And all the messages told me, be the nice white lady and go into those schools and save those black and brown children. Yeah. And she said, you've all seen the movies. And usually when we were training together, you know, people would nervously laugh because they knew that that was true. That we've set it up in such a way, like this is what I mean when I talk about cultural shifts or ideology that like the ideology in the United States is, is, is actually an ideology that tells white women that they are here to help and fix everything. Like their job is to do that. Right. And that, that came through all kinds of messages from all kinds of like institutions, like church institutions. They do that. They really talk about how, right. Like you need to make a casserole because so-and-so is sick. 
Um, and so what I think really gets warped here is that we don't really even know our school history, um, much less our American history or like, but like, we don't even know the history of how schools got set up. We don't know the history of how it became so feminized. Um, yeah. cause it didn't used to be. We don't know the history of why we even operate on nine month calendars. Like most people don't know that history. We don't, we don't operate on, we don't know much about common schools or, or what the first thoughts were, were these traditional schools that, that were going to be built or what Horace Mann had to do with this or how we get set up with all of the white, um, you know, theorists that we have to all read in undergrad, like, like. I can I can talk about Piaget and Vygotsky with teachers till I'm blue in the face, but right. these white men did not study anybody but white people, and yet we're all asked to absorb this. Like I'm just trying to paint a picture of like even how I have absorbed how oppressive white supremacy is. That that it gives it tells me all those messages as well. One quote in that same piece, I think it's in the same piece that really rocked me in a new way, I want to say. You say, do you think your white femininity makes you a safe person for every person of color in this country? Mm. And I think it was that question when I started to see that maybe that wasn't the case. But it was once that I started to see that that was not the case, that actually my whiteness had an impact on students, all students, but that it had a different impact on some of my students of color. And so that was sort of my entree in, in a way, was sort of understanding, oh, my, I have a race, first of all. And second of all, it impacts how I teach what I teach and how what I teach is received. And I've never thought about that. Nobody's asked me to think about that. Um, and so I just think that is a fabulous question. <laughs> yeah, that's women. the one white women have told me has hit them the hardest. Yeah. Because I I think it's what you just named in in, in your own reflection on having been confronted with it, which is really not just about your whiteness, but about your very presence. Like yeah. you, you cannot assume that you show up safe for me right? or anyone else. As a matter of fact, you are, you are highly dangerous in the history of this country, highly dangerous, especially in those hidden ways where you were meant to seem angelic and pure and, and all of these wonderful attributes that you get. But Part of that is that those messages have been passed down to from white women to white women and to even white passing women, right? Like this is a thing you can attain. <clears throat> and that it never really occurs to you to think about how much space you take up. I, I'm hearing a lot of people talking about going back to normal and I, that, that is scary to me. Mm-hmm. What is back to normal and what are we satisfied with? Some serious status quo. Yeah. But, you know, and I do, I will say, you know, I, I give us, you know, I'm giving us a little bit of grace here, right? Like this is traumatic. Yeah. So we should, we should really name that. We should really name that this is traumatic. We should name our harm. We should name this, the fact that the systems have been harming people and that there's ideology like white supremacy that's been upholding those systems, right? Like maybe we could actually take care of people better. And, yeah. and so I'm just, I'm really hopeful that, you know, I'm, I'm seeing so much about um, abolitionist teaching um, and some really radical pedagogy that, that like, it's been a long time coming for this. Yeah. And I also want to say we have to give ourselves that space to dream and announce someone recently I say recently, but it could have been six months ago and I don't know time. Um, <laughs> but someone asked recently if uh, like, what would the world be like? Like what would, what world would I build if I could build a new world right now? And I'm yeah. thinking about that, that piece by Arundhati Roy, which I'm just like, I can't yeah. get enough of that. Like what if this pandemic is a portal? Yeah. And if it is a portal to something else, like what is the best thing we could possibly build right now? And it really, really ashamed me that it took me a long time to come up with an answer. Whoa, what would a world look like 
if I weren't harmed? What would a world look like if I did not have to heal from all of the racial trauma? So you created an online workshop, presumably mostly for white teachers, it seems. And I, and I believe I saw you say, there's so many white teachers saying, what am I supposed to do? So I'm just going to create this workshop. Is that how that came to be? It did. Um, and it also came to be because I was getting so many private messages from white women, friends of mine, who were asking for asking about what they could do. It was like, organize. Start yeah. to organize. You got to start to organize. You got to start thinking like an organizer. And I know you can because you come from people who've organized to actually set this shit up. So, yeah. Yeah. So you started a class, how to start a plan and take action. Yes. So uh, they were asking all the same questions and some of it had to do with like how they were shaped, which is why I open up with my own racial shaping and what that did to me uh, and also for me. And what, um, what, like, how do you even have a conversation? Which is why I'm like, listen, Glenn Singleton has this on lock y'all. He has courageous conversations. Like there's a protocol to doing this. Um, and, and then also really thinking about the number of times the white women and many of them white teachers were asking me like, how do I know what's being done in my community? I'm like, you live there, right? Like that's where you live. Stop acting like you don't live there. Um, and then also maybe like think about the harm that you have just created for yourself because you live in a bubble there. Um, and so I just thought, I'm just going to put this together. This is really basic stuff. Like it is super one-on-one. It is not at all what I go into in any of the workshops I do for being black at school or for crossroads, anti-racism organizing and training. Um, it is, it's really just like, we've got to start. You've got to like, some people are lapping you on this, this track that you're on. And, um, we've been waiting for you to just pay attention that you even had to put your damn shoes on. So get them on. Let's go. And two pieces that I think, um, for folks who are listening and hearing about this course, how to start a plan and take action, and it's on grassroots workshops. I highly recommend it. Um, and two things that really are important, I think, when we talk about white saviorism and all the other pieces, is you do talk about how do you take leadership from people of color, mm-hmm. right? Um, how do we not put all the responsibility on people of color? And then you also talk about how this work can't be done in isolation. So in that way, doing the course on your own to get started, you give some great resources, readings to do to get the ball rolling. And I just, I love that you did this course. I want to thank you for doing this course. I'm going to send lots of people to it. And um, oh, Jenna, that makes me feel really good. Thank you. No, I, I think it's a fabulous place to start for folks who are um, not sure where to go. And you talk about silence being a choice. And this is, this is the soapbox I've been standing on. White silence to me, if I could, it's one of the things that keeps me up at night is yeah. white silence. Um, and so I actually do a lot of work in white affinity spaces where we practice interrupting because it's not a skill that we often have as white women, right? Well, I would say, in fact, it's a skill that's been hidden from you. Yeah. So we're doing that practicing because white silence shouldn't be a choice. It shouldn't be an option. What if we just put humanity first? What if we said, you know what? We have enough medicine for everyone. We have, we have enough food for everyone. So don't worry. You don't have to be hungry. And you know what? We have enough housing for everyone. Don't worry about staying in your home or your apartment or your condo. Don't worry. We've got enough. We have enough energy and, and air conditioning and, and lights and electricity. And we have enough, like we have enough education. Like we can, like we can survive this, you all. Which reminds me, you talk about beloved community in your course. Is that the goal? That is the goal, but it also is like a practice. And I think that beloved community is... Can you explain it for folks who don't know what it is? Yeah, um, I will try because Dr. King and Josiah Rose do it much better than I can do it. I think it means uh, having this understanding that we belong to one another. I mean, justice is always the goal, right? Like I heard Brian Stevenson um, say, the opposite of poverty is justice. And the opposite of, right, the opposite of a lot of horrible things that we're currently experiencing is justice. So if we want a society that's going to be just, uh, if we want to love one another, 
we have to be, we have to be actually right in right relationship with each other enough to even say, Hey, Jenna, like, look, you've been my friend for a really long time. And I got to tell you about how you were super showing up white today. Like (laughs) it's because it's because like, if I'm in a beloved community with you, Jenna, I can say that to you and you will, you'll just be like, Oh my gosh, how did I get caught up in it again? All right. I'm listening. Tell me about it, Kelly. And not like not defensive, right? It's not like, can't believe yeah. that she just said that to me. Um, I can't believe that this is like, to me, that's the healthiest a community can be is when we love each other so much. We're telling the truth about our experiences. We're telling the truth about the ways other people get things that are undeserved. And, and like, we should be able to name that. So um, it's really, I think that Dr. King really, who popularized it as, and, and when you think about the principles of nonviolence, right? Like those are, a huge part of that. And, to, and I'm nonviolent. Like, I mean, so far I'm nonviolent. <laughs> um, and I will say this, um, I, like I understand and want to be in a beloved community and I understand the need for the violence that is being pushed back like against right now. People think that like nonviolent means that I'm going to sit down peacefully in the middle of the street and sing songs. That's, that's not what this is about. This is about like naming the hard shit and then demanding change. Like where's the action from that? If I'm living in a beloved community, I'm listening to the people of color who have been harmed in my community. And then I'm fighting on their behalf Yeah. and I don't need them to prove it to me. Uh, I don't need them to like, it doesn't need to be performative at all. You, you said you've been hurt. Excellent. All right, let's change that. And not because I'm here to save you, but because your humanity matters to me and for me to be fully human as well. Right, And your, your liberation is bound up with mine. That was Kelly Wickham Hurst, author of the blog Mocha Mama and the founder and executive director of Being Black at School. I love how Kelly really shines a light on the intersection of whiteness and femininity. Such a large number of teachers are white women, and we often don't talk about the impact of both of those identities on our students and colleagues. It reminds me that we have to start with our own self-reflection and recognize that our identity impacts how and what we teach. Yes, and how Jose and Kelly both ask white teachers to notice the discrepancy between what we say our values are and how we act on those beliefs, both at school and in our personal lives. We also need to stop dictating the rules of the game. And most importantly, they point to the need and urgency for white teachers to apply what they have learned in their book clubs and get busy making change. This episode was brought to you by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative and was edited by Stephen Smith. Our music was written and performed by Henry Needham, I'm Elizabeth Denevi. And I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward, and this is Teaching While White.